Welcome. Welcome to the Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. Today's date is February 3rd, 2024. My name is Tanya G, and I'm a grateful recovered compulsive overeater from Louisiana. I will be your host for today's study. Um, along with our co-hosts are Audrey N, Nancy J, Sue L, and others that I don't uh, remember. I'm sorry. <laughs> if you have any questions during the meeting, please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts by private message in the chat function. The chat function will be disabled until five minutes before the questions and answer session. Please note that the speaker, Harlan G, will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the Q&A session, which follows, will not be recorded. We ask that if you please, we ask if you can please make sure you keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also, please turn off your video if you are exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen for any reason. During the meeting, we will post the link to our seventh tradition. This money goes towards the, the cost of our Zoom account, the cost of uploading our recordings, and we also um, send contributions to our intergroup and WSO. We will post a link to the previous week's recordings. <coughs> These are available by clicking on the link that will be posted in the chat box. And now we turn it over, the meeting to Harlan G. Go right ahead. Thank Alan. you. Thank you very much, Tanya. And I just want to say how honored I am that you guys are here uh, I want to say a special shout out to Sue L, who has served as our treasurer for the years, uh, right during the pandemic, when we moved to Zoom. I never saw this coming. I never saw that we would still be on Zoom all these years later. And she has served as our treasurer. So uh, we want to say a special thank you to her. Uh, she made sure that we were uh, paying our bills with Zoom. And she made sure that we were collecting the money. And she did an outstanding, outstanding job. So thank you, Sue L, for your years of service to our group. And she has graciously served and now is stepping down to rotate service. So we, we hope that our, uh, our successor to her office will be as efficient and as fantastic as she has been over the past years. And she got us started. Today is a very special day for me. Yesterday was February 2nd. And in, on February 2nd, 1979, 45 years and one day ago on a Friday night, yes, it was a Friday night, just like yesterday was, I went into my first OA meeting of my life at the Orchard Mental Health Center. See, God likes to laugh too. The Orchard Mental Health Center in Skokie, Illinois. It was a seven o'clock meeting. I was 300 pounds heavier than anybody in that room. I was 24 years old. I was years, many years younger than anybody in that room. There was one girl, one lady in there. She was roughly my age and she came to some of the meetings that I went to. And then like many, she faded away and we, I never saw her again. But uh, when I came into OA in 1979, at the age of 24, I never believed that, A, I would still be alive 
going on 70 years of age. I never believed I would still be alive. Doctors have been signing my death my death certificate since I was a teenager. And I didn't want to be alive. I didn't want to really be alive. It was not my uh, dream to be alive. I just wanted to go. I wanted, I didn't want to kill myself, but I just wanted to die. And people would say to me, you're going to die. You're going to die. And I learned that you infuriate them if you say good. But inside I was saying good because I knew I could not live with the food and I knew I could not live without the food. It never ever occurred to me that there was any type of solution. It never occurred to me that there was a way out of this disease. It never occurred to me that there would be a time in my life where I could not only live without the food, but I could live without the food and to do so happily. It just never, ever occurred to me that that was possible. And uh, I don't want to take up our whole hour, although I could, but I just want to give you some amazing miracles of God, miracles of God. I am alive, as you can hear and see, I am alive. And I want to be alive and I'm, I embrace every moment as best I can. In the 45 year journey that I've had in this program, I have seen miracles beyond human comprehension. There are an average of about 150 people per week that come to listen to this uh, uh, session. That blows me away. And there are 200 people per week that listen to this on podcast, meaning 350 people per week are listening to anything that I would ever have to say about anything other than my massive consumption of Twinkies and Hostess cupcakes and Chips Ahoy. And I could go on and on and on and on. When I came into this program, Back in 1979, my dad had just died. My mom had died a few years before. I was very lost, very scared, very angry, and very overwhelmed. My friends, as we were in our 20s, were not thinking about what they could do for me, which is not their responsibility. They were starting their families. They were getting married. They were dating. They were starting careers. They were doing the things that people do when they're in their early to mid-20s. They were not sitting around wringing their hands thinking, what are we going to do to help Harlan? They were sitting around thinking, how am I going to get the promotion? How am I going to get the job? How am I going to get this girl to go out with me? How am I going to get this girl to want to marry me or whatever that may have been? And I looked around from the time I was a, a, a infant, I mean a child, a toddler, and I looked around at the world and I saw people that were seemingly happy. Whether they were happy or not is not was not up to me or not known to me, but it seemed that they had a measure of freedom and happiness and ease and comfort that they could navigate life that was denied to me. There was a certain amount of joy, a certain amount of togetherness, a certain amount of family, of passion, of sex, of romance, 
of whatever that was given to, to people that was denied to me. And I did not know why in the world it was denied me. I sometimes wondered reflectively, what spree of felonies did I commit neonatally? Because it seemed to me that I had been in this situation even before I was born. I just never quite fit in. I just never quite could touch that instruction manual for life. I just never could quite rise above uh, failure. And everything I did turned to crap because uh, I, I didn't dare dream. I didn't dare work hard. I, not forgetting the fact that I'm as lazy as the day is long, but I, I knew in my mind that no matter what I dared to dream, would be um, destroyed, annihilated by my weight and the food. I didn't know it was a disease then. I just knew that there was something very, very different about me than other people. Uh, I, I've watched from the time I was a child. I've watched from the time I was a little boy. I've watched parents. You've heard me talk about this before. They will split a hamburger or split a sandwich and then they'll split it again. And maybe they will give uh, uh, a half a sandwich to two siblings or three siblings. None of those siblings will finish their part of the sandwich. And it was just beyond my comprehension how a person doesn't finish a sandwich or finish a half a sandwich. How does a person split a half an, a, a small order of French fries and there's still fries left that they wrap up and they throw them in the garbage can? It just was beyond my comprehension. There was something in my heart that was just full of pain and fear. And the real emotion that I felt wasn't anger so much as it was fear and jealousy. Jealousy is a form of fear. Jealousy is a stepchild of fear. I just felt scared all the time. And if I could have gotten uh, in touch with my real feelings and you would have asked me from ages zero to whenever, what are you feeling or how are you today? I would have told you that I was just scared to death. I was just scared to death. What I was afraid of, if you had asked me, I was afraid of everything. I just couldn't put my finger on what I was afraid of. Now, you've heard me say in here that there are three things above all else that I feared, and there, that's very true. One was girls, two was the doctor, and three was buying clothes. Because anytime you come at me with a doctor who's going to weigh you and then scream at you at the top of his lungs, or anytime you come at me with a tape measure to measure me for clothes, and I have vivid memories of being in the big and tall store, and the big and tall store would shake their head and say, I don't think I have pants to fit you. I don't think I have a shirt to fit you. I don't think I had to go to the biggest size in the big and tall store from the time I was a teenager. And there were only certain stores that went above waist size 60. Most of the big and tall stores had 
waist size up to 60, but there was just a few that had up to 72. And that was where I had to go to buy pants. I couldn't buy pants even at the big and tall store. And there was no online at that time. There, you What you had to do was often you'd have to order it through the store and it would take weeks to get there. And you had to pay four, five, eight, ten times the price of a normal situation. And of course, it didn't look right. It doesn't hang right. Clothes don't hang right when you're size 72 inch waist. Clothes don't hang on you like they're going to hang on Steve McQueen or Sean Connery or Robert Vaughn or whomever. They're just not going to hang on you the same way. And even though you can talk yourself into the fact that you may look okay, you really don't. Because what you're doing is you're just putting lipstick on a pig. You're dressing up a morbidly obese body with some new clothes. It is still underneath a morbidly obese body. Uh, without going into my whole story, because that's not the purpose of our gathering today, we're going to open with Bill's story very soon here. But I just want to thank God Almighty that I have survived and I have traveled the, the country. Uh, I have been to Israel. I've been to, I like, love to go back to Israel, but I've traveled to Israel and I've traveled to Alaska and I've traveled to just so many places, Canada. Um, I've never done it in Mexico, but I've been to Canada a couple of times and <clears throat> I've been so lucky. I have friends all over the world. I have friends all over the world how lucky am I to be living this way of life? And uh, there's very few places I can go where there won't be an OA person that I know that lives in or near that area so that I have that fellowship. I have the purpose and that rhythm that underlay all things. I'm still alive and I'm not eating and I'm very happy not to be eating. I'm not white knuckle abstinent. If you want to ask me later, what is white knuckle abstinent? You don't have to. White knuckle is if you've ever been on a chin up bar as a kid and you're just hanging there and your, your knuckles are going to turn white. You're just hanging there, hanging there. I'm not swinging from the chandeliers, stark raving abstinent. I'm abstinent because I've had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. And um, I've been able to tell my story. And when I go to the lobby of the LAX Hilton for the OA birthday, I'm as at home there as I am here at my house. I'm as at home at the vision conventions as I am in my house. I am as at home in an OA meeting as I am here at my house. That is a gift from God. And it's been a it's been a ride. It's been a wild wild ride and it hit. I I'm glad uh that I didn't uh have to miss any of it. I'm not glad I weighed as much as I weighed. I'm not glad I missed out on the passion and the romance. I went on my first date with a girl. I was 35 years old and I will never be someone's first love. I will never be, you know, maybe I'll never be whatever, 
but what I am is alive. I'm alive. And maybe I didn't have the romantic entanglements, which I wish I would have had. Maybe I didn't have the romance and all that, but I have my story. And sometimes I think it's not as good. And sometimes I feel very cheated because I didn't have the youthful passions and the youthful adventures that are normal to a life. But I've had my experiences. And um, I've, I've opened up conventions as the, as the opening speaker. And I've been the closing speaker. And I've done, I've done big book studies, as I say, all over the place. Now, if any of you are listening, whether you're listening here uh, on, as I'm doing it here on February the 3rd, 2024, or if you're listening on a podcast, whether it's now in 2024 or sometime in the future, maybe I'm not around anymore. Maybe I'm gone. Maybe I'm at that big meeting in the sky. But I do want to challenge each and every one of you that as there is a story that I had to tell, or I was able to tell, not had to, that I was able to tell that you have your story, that as much as me, you are part of the tapestry of what this is. You are part of the thread that holds this together. And there's no reason on God's earth that you have to sit by and watch me tell my story and not think to yourself, I need to tell my story because you have a story. And just as maybe you relate to my morbid obesity and my, my adventures with food, there are people who do not. Maybe you are a bulimic. Maybe you are an anorexic, which I am not. Maybe you are a restrictor, which is really an anorexic. But maybe you have, not maybe, you have your story. And because you have been given your story, that story is a story that A, needs to be told, needs to be heard, and your story will save lives too. That when I tell my story, there are people who say, I don't relate to this guy. I've never been significantly overweight in my life. There are people who will hear your story and they will relate right down the line. Now, maybe, maybe you will be in OA for 45 years like me, abstinent 25 years like me. Maybe you won't. But whether you're here for a day or a decade, whether you're here for a moment or a millennium, tell your story. Now, how do you tell your story? Get into recovery. Recover so you have a story. If you're in recovery, yours is a story that needs to be told. Yours is a story that needs to be heard. Yours is a story that will elevate the human spirit because your story is the story that somebody needs to hear. They can't all get abstinent on me. They can't all get abstinent on you. It takes a village to raise a child, and each and every one of us is part of that village. I hope for each and every one of you, and I hope for tens of thousands of years after I'm long gone, 
that each and every one of you will know what it's like to get up in the morning and be glad you're alive and have a purpose to get out of bed. My purpose to get out of bed is not to make money, although I have to do that. My purpose in getting out of bed is not to catch a television show, although I do more than enough of that. My purpose in life to get out of bed is to be of maximum service to God and the people about me. I sponsor more people than I should. I give of myself and I'm not a martyr and I'm not a, 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 a wonderful saint of a person. I'm not. But what I do is I catch lightning in a bottle and the more people I give to, the more I get to keep. And all over that big book, from the moment it begins, we're going to go to page one today, from the moment it begins to the moment that it ends, it teaches us to give of ourselves. You have a story too. Stop denying it. Stop lying to yourself that no one wants to hear your story. That's a bunch of crap. That's a bunch of crap. There are people out there that need to hear your story, whether you are black or white or Catholic or Protestant or Jewish or Buddhist or atheist or agnostic or highly religious, does not matter. Whoever you are, there are there is someone out there that will be altered to the better because of what you've done. I invite you to pass on your story because once you go to the big meeting in the sky, you take your story with you. Don't take it with you, leave it behind. Leave it behind so that it can save lives. Any idiot can count the seeds in an apple, but only God can count the apples in a seed. And I challenge you today, stop looking at me and saying to yourself, well, if I was 45 years and I had all this, lose 500 pounds. No, 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 no. Any idiot can count the seeds in an apple, but only God can count the apples in a seed. And your story is precious to somebody that you may not even know. You've heard me tell the story many times of my friend. His name was Scott. He's dead now. His name was Scott. And he was in Los Angeles, California. He was multiply addicted. And alcoholism was his major uh, challenge. And he was at the AA office on a rainy, miserable Saturday night in Los Angeles. And he got the call to come out to some motel in East Los Angeles. So he went out with another fella. They always go out in twos. They went out to this motel and they see a guy and he's sitting on the bed drinking. And they're talking to this guy for about an hour and he's falling asleep. So they figure he's not listening. He's falling asleep. They take off his shoes and they, uh, what do you call it? They take off his shoes, they put him to bed, and five years later, five years later, uh, he is speaking in San Diego at a meeting, an alcathon, 
And a guy comes up to him and he says, you saved my life. And he puts a big bear hug on him. And, and my friend Scott says, I don't know you. I, I, I don't think I know you. And the guy says, oh, yeah. He says, do you remember a few years ago when you went out to a motel in East L.A. and you were there and you were talking to a guy sitting on the bed? He says, yeah, but that wasn't you. He says, no, that wasn't me. But I was hiding underneath the bed and I heard every word you said and I haven't had a drink since. So you never know who's hiding under the bed that needs to hear your story. You don't know who, now you may talk to somebody who will never recover, but they will tell something about your story to someone else. And that will trigger that person to come into the meeting and it'll save their life. God works in very mysterious ways. He doesn't always work in ways that you think he should or could. He works in his own very mysterious ways. So tell your story. Stop waiting for me to tell mine. Mine is, is one thing, but yours is another thing. And there are people who need to hear it. And my sincere hope for you every one of you, whether you're on podcast or you're here as we're doing it, my sincere hope, wish, and prayer for you is that your journey through OA will be as life-giving, will be as fulfilled and satisfactory and God-blessed as mine. I'm alive. I am uh, I got divorced a number of years ago, which was traumatic for me. My wife got involved with another gentleman. That was very traumatic for me. I have a very uh, challenging, to say the least, relationship with my daughter. She doesn't. She doesn't like me very much. Uh, you know, that's just the way it goes. It happens. But I have OA. It is the biggest part of my life. It doesn't, it doesn't take a backseat to anything or anybody. I do work full time. I have my responsibilities. I'm, I'm in a relationship with a very uh, special person, very, very special human being. And I'm very, very lucky to be involved with this person. I'm hoping that it will, uh, I'm hoping that it will it'll it'll be uh, uh, something that will last a long time forever, but you know only God will be able to tell. Um, there are things I wish I could do. There are things I wish I could turn the clock back. I wish I could go to the prom. I wish I could go back and go to homecoming. I wish I could have held a girl's hand. I wish I could have. I wish I could have done a lot of things, but I can't. But what I am today is lucky to be here, lucky to be in OA. And uh, my sincere wish, again, as I say, for each and every one of you, keep coming back. This is the greatest way of life I know of. It is a way of life that includes just the wonder of God. And just to close this part of it, and then we'll get to Bill's story here. 
I was speaking not long ago to a person who is a doctor, who is a physician. And this man told me that if there's three things, this is not long ago, I mean years ago. So if there's three things I would recommend for a longer and better life, he'd say, eat less, move more, and fill your life with other people who are positive people. Eat less, move more, and fill your life with positive people and all the love that God will send your way. I've been many things. Lonely is the worst of them. Lonely and scared. Lonely and scared is a very, very tough place to be. But I don't have to be lonely and I don't have to be scared. I do get lonely and scared sometimes, but I have a phone and it rings and it's usually one of you calling me up and in taking your phone call, I'm a lot less lonely and a lot less scared than I was before. So it's a great way of life. Don't piss it away. Don't crap it away. Every day is precious. There's no contracts and there's no guarantees. I see some of the faces and they're very young. I hope one day you'll remember me as giving you the challenge of making your story, making your story that part of this tapestry. This is the greatest way of life imaginable and we pass the baton to you. I'm slowing down. I'm not doing the big book studies I used to do. I just got invited yesterday out of town. I don't know that I'll go, but some of them I'm saying, no, I can't do the traveling anymore. It's your turn to fill the breach. It's your turn to do it. It's not my turn anymore. I've had my turn. It's your turn. So I challenge you and I bless you. May you have, if it's not 45 years, whatever time you have left, make the most of it, make the most of it. And as concentration camp survivors would tell me when I was a little boy, they would say, live until you die. And the way I will live until I die is to work this program and to share with you and to walk among you that road of happy destiny so that we can be family, we can be as one, that we can go to the conventions through the years and hug each other and love each other and know that we love one another and that we're in each other's corners. It's a great way to live. I don't have to live in your state. I don't have to live in your city. I don't have to live in your hemisphere to love you and to be part of your family. And you are part of my family, especially uh, with Zoom. Uh, it's just an amazing, amazing ride and vision with all that. So trudge it with us, trudge it with us. It is the greatest way of life imaginable. Okay, now that we've done that, let's go to page one. Now this is 
a chapter that is very near to my heart. Uh, it is a chapter that is near to my heart because Bill Wilson is one of my heroes. You know how they have um, on TV or the radio, or if you could have lunch with anybody living or dead, who would you have lunch with? And I used to think, oh, I'd have lunch with Ernie Banks because I'd sure like to have lunch with him. I mean, he's Mr. Cub, right? But honestly speaking, if I could have lunch with anybody living or dead, I would have lunch with Bill Wilson. I couldn't think of anybody I'd rather spend some time with than Bill Wilson. I just couldn't think of anybody I'd rather you know, spend that time with. Bill Wilson was born on the 26th of November, 1895. He was born in East Dorset, Vermont, which is a small town. And his parents were Emily and Gilman Wilson. Emily, his mother, and Gilman, his dad, would divorce in 1906 when Bill was 10 years old. And the reason that they got divorced is because of Gilman Wilson's alcoholism. Gilman is Bill's dad, and he was an alcoholic. And when Bill's when Bill was 10 years old, uh, Dorothy, his sister, who would play into this a little later on, because she's going to marry a guy by the name of Leonard Strong. Not today, but eventually we're going to see how he's going to play into this as well. Leonard, uh, excuse me, Dorothy and Bill Wilson when Bill was 10 years old, went to live with Bill's maternal grandparents. That's Fayette and Ella Griffin, Griffith. And uh, they were Bill's maternal grandparents. And they lived in East Dorset, Vermont as well. And that is where he will go to live. And Bill was a very, very smart little boy, but he was fractured by the divorce of his parents. I really hated being divorced. There was a, there is a certain stigma to it uh, that uh, I just don't like. I don't like being a divorced person. You know, sometimes you have to fill stuff out and it'll say marital status, single, divorced, uh, married, whatever it is. I don't like filling it out as divorced, so I fill it out as single. I don't like filling it out as divorced. But he didn't like it either. And in 1906, divorce was a very different phenomenon than it is today. It was very rare. And he was always very um, marked by this divorce. The, the trauma of it affected Bill very, very much. He always felt less than. Now, whether he would have felt less than anyway, we don't know. But this is something that really affected Bill Wilson tremendously was the divorce of his parents. He was a very smart boy. He passed the Edison test. And Edison, the Edison test was a test that was given to young boys uh, by the uh, Thomas Alva Edison, the group that he was with. And if uh, Thomas Edison felt that you had an acumen for math and science, he would let you apprentice under him and that would mean a lot to you. When, when Bill was a young boy, he was very, very determined. And if he made up his mind 
to do something. He would not let anything rest until that was done. And when he was a young boy, he found a violin up in the attic of his grandpa's grandpa and grandma's house. And he learned to play the violin and practiced tirelessly. And he became co-first chair of his school's orchestra and quite the violin player. Now, when we go out to Stepping Stones in New York, uh, in, uh, in uh, New York, in Westchester County, I believe it's Bedford Hills or Bedford, yeah, Bedford Hills, New York, Katona, New York, I think is what they really call it, Katona, New York. We can see the violin and we can see Lois's piano there. And Bill was a very determined child, as I said. He read in a magazine or a book that only an Aborigine could fashion a boomerang that would actually come back to you. So he worked tirelessly and he fashioned the boomerang where it actually came back to you. It almost took Grandpa Griffith's head off when it did, but he fashioned the boomerang so that it would come back to you and he was successful. He found an old baseball glove up there and he practiced tirelessly and became the starting shortstop and co-captain of his school's baseball team. And when he was in school, he was at uh, Burr and Burton uh, Seminary. Now it's called Burr and Burton Academy. But at that time in the early 20th century, it was called Burr and Burton Academy. And one of the boys on that baseball team was a young man from uh, Albany, New York, but went to school there because his family had a home in Manchester, New York. If you had money, you lived in Manchester, not New York, Vermont. And if you didn't have money, you lived in East Dorset, Vermont. But this young man was Edward Ebby Thatcher. And when Bill was 10, 11 years old, he met Edwin Ebby Thatcher, and they became very good friends. And that's how Ebby and Bill met, was on the baseball team at Burr and Burton Seminary. And uh, when Bill was a teenager, before Lois came into the picture, he fell in love with a girl named Bertha Bamford. Bertha Bamford was the love of Bill's life. And Bertha went to New York with her folks to have what was described to Bill as a very routine surgery, very routine. And she died. She was 17 years old. She died on the operating table. And Bill fell into the first of many of his lifelong depressions throughout his life. Bill suffered from depression, he suffered from anxiety, and he suffered from a severe inferiority complex. He felt very strongly that he had to have doubles of everything to be half as, he had to work twice as hard to be half as good as everybody else. And this is something that he spoke of during his life. He had a severe inferiority complex, anxiety and depression. So Bill was a smart guy. I'm a little jealous of him because he was skinny as a rail and tall and thin. 
So I was always very jealous of him for that. He could buy clothes. He probably didn't have to worry about talking to girls. And he didn't have to worry about going to the doctor. I have memories of doctors, dentists, uh, screaming at my mother, screaming at my father uh, about how fat I was and what's going on. And why are you letting him eat all this food, blah, blah, blah. So I have some pretty vivid memories of that stuff. And as I've related here, when I was nine and 10 years old, uh, Dr. Jacobson put me on very strong diet pills, very heavy duty amphetamines. And that really didn't help me at all. I lost weight, but it really didn't help me at all because it made me twice as crazy. If you can believe it made me twice as crazy as I already am. So that's pretty crazy. When you think about me being twice as crazy as I am today, I don't know that uh, that uh, I should probably have been in a in a in an insane asylum somewhere. I don't know, but the bottom line is definitely this: that there is no earthly solution to this problem. None. It's not in the form of a pill. It's not in the form of any drug. It's not in the form of anything like that. It says in chapter three, we have an illness that only a spiritual awakening will conquer. And that's just what I've learned to accept. And we're going to start on page one. I know we're almost out of time. We only have 20 minutes left, but I did want to relate to you my 45 year journey here. I cut it short to try to do some big book, but once again, I'm not, I'm not going to apologize. I think when a person has been in here for 45 years, uh, there is something that needs to be, there is something that probably should be said. Thank you. I see some of you applauding in that. So thank you very much. All right. War fever ran high in the New England town to which we knew young officers from Plattsburgh were assigned. Plattsburgh is a small town in upstate New York where he was assigned and war fever ran high. And this is 1918. He was married on January the 24th, 1918 and shipped out to fight World War I right after that. So don't let some person in the meeting that you're in say Bill was in World War II. He definitely was not. He was in World War I, not II. Okay. And we were flattered when the first citizens took us to their homes, making us feel heroic. Here was love, applause, war, Moments sublime with intervals hilarious. So he was making friends. He was part of his unit and they were having some fun together. And up to that point, they hadn't shipped out for Europe and it was all fun and games. Everything was just camaraderie. I was part of life at last. And in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. I forgot the strong warnings and prejudices of my people concerning drink. In time, we sail for over there. Over there denotes World War I. I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. Now, this is a sentence that a lot of you will skip over in your meetings and you won't pay attention to it. But I'm going to give you some of the gold 
that's in this chapter, little phrases, little, little things. And you remember, this chapter was not supposed to be chapter one. That there were two editors of the big book. There was Janet Blair, who looked over the book for grammatical errors and punctuation. And then there was Tom Uzzle, who looked over the contents. And Tom Uzzle saw this story in the story section. Bill's story was going to head up the story section, just like Dr. Bob's story does now. And he moved it to page one. He cut it almost in half. He cut out a lot of stuff. Uh, he cut it down. There's a bill story is 16 pages and the original draft was over 30 pages, but he cut almost half of it down and uh, he put it in here. But this is gold. I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. It doesn't say I was very thirsty and, and needed a drink. It didn't say I had a taste for liquor and wanted more liquor. I was very lonely and again, turn to alcohol means that alcohol was the solution to his problem, not the problem itself, because Bill was not feeling very confident when he went into the army. I was going to get into this in my story, but I'm going to relate it to Bill's story. And that makes means we can move through faster in my lifetime. Food was never the problem. Food was the solution to the problem. People who come in here and say food's my problem may be in the wrong program. They may be in the wrong room. I don't relate to that. If food was my problem, boys and girls, then diets would work. If food was my problem, hospitals would turn out winners and they don't. If food was my problem, then it would just be settled by a diet or a, or, or a new food plan, and then I'd be fine. But food is not my problem. Food is the solution to the problem. So if food is the solution to the problem, what is the problem? The problem is the discomfort I have feeling my feelings, my built-up human emotions. Happiness is an emotion. I have eaten railroad cars full of Chips Ahoy cookies when I was happy. Sad, jealous, angry, guilt, shame, remorse, fear, whatever that may be, food is the solution. Because when you put an Almond Joy bar in my mouth, it instantly changes my perception of reality. And when I was a little boy, as I described to you, watching parents split a hamburger or split a sandwich, what I did not understand is food was not doing for the eater of that food anything like what it was doing for me. I didn't say to me, I said for me. When you put a Almond Joy bar, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, anything fried, you fry a shoe, I'm going to love it. Fry a tire, I'm going to eat it, whatever that may be. As long as it's French fried, I'm in. But these foods gave me an instant sense of ease and comfort. They instantly changed my perception of reality. 
They made everything okay. When I'm eating an Almond Joy bar, the girls are all going to like me. The boys are all going to like me. The world is going to like me. I'm just like you for about nine seconds. For about nine seconds, I have confidence that I've never had before in my life. I feel just like Dorothy did in The Wizard of Oz. Dorothy, in the beginning and the very end of the movie, is in this gray sort of sepia environment, various shades of gray. Now, once she goes to Oz and she wakes up in Oz, she is in the most glorious color, technicolor that anybody has ever seen. That is exactly what happens to me when I eat French fries. When I eat French fries, the world is a colorful, beautiful place. The only problem is, two problems. Number one, that only lasts about nine seconds. And the other problem is, is that now I have tripwired the physical allergy. So when I eat the French fry, I cannot stop eating them. And the more of them I eat, the more I want, the more I want, the more I eat. And it's just endless. Now, my friends don't have this disease. So when they eat four French fries or seven French fries, they're done. Genug. Genug is a Yiddish word for enough. If I was yelling at my mother and she was yelling at me, my dad would come in and say, Genug. That's enough. He's heard enough. He just wants to watch Walter Cronkite in the news. He doesn't want to be disturbed anymore. He would say, Genug. Genug means enough. Enough. I never got enough. I ate for decades. I ate as much as any 50 people could eat, and it was never enough. I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. Alcohol was not his problem. It was the solution to the problem. Now, as we go through Bill's story, we're going to ask ourselves a question, or more than one, actually. Do I think like Bill thinks, and do I eat like Bill drinks? And if I do, then the purpose of moving it to, to page one has been fulfilled. What is the purpose of putting it on page one rather than in the story section so you can identify in so that you know you're in the right place? Do I think like Bill thinks? Do I eat like Bill drinks? So far, yes. We landed in England. I visited Winchester Cathedral. This is now the summer of 1918. He is landing in Europe. He's in England and he goes to Winchester Cathedral. He had been warned, as it says, that he, in the, uh, I forgot the strong warnings and prejudice of my people. 
His mother told him many times, don't drink liquor. Your father is an alcoholic. Your grandfather was an alcoholic. Their lives are destroyed by the consumption of alcohol. His grandmother, his grand, his grandmother used to say to him, Billy, don't drink. She called him Billy. Billy, don't drink liquor. Your my, you know, your grandfather's a drunk and your father is a drunk. Don't drink liquor. Now, he's drinking because while he's at Plattsburgh and while he's in Europe, he's drinking. And the drinking is working for him. But he remembers these warnings. Now, this trip to Winchester Cathedral is going to have so much impact on him. He's actually going to mention it again, I believe, on page 10. He's going to mention this again. What, let's see what's so important. We landed in England. I visited Winchester Cathedral. Much moved, I wandered outside. My attention was caught by a dog roll. A dog roll is a comedic little uh, like expression or poem, something on an old tombstone. Here lies a Hampshire grenadier who caught his death drinking cold small beer. A good soldier is ne'er forgot whether he dieth by musket or by pot. Now, we're looking at the grave of a man who died in 1764. He was 26 years old at the time that he died. And um, his name was Thomas Fetcher. Now, I've already told you that one of Bill's very good friends who is going to play prominently in this story soon, but not today, not even the next couple of weeks, but soon is Ebby Thatcher. And Ebby Thatcher and Thomas Thatcher have very close sounding names. But the reason that this is important is because Bill is looking at the grave of a man who was not killed in battle, who died of drinking beer. And he's looking at this and it has an impact on him because he doesn't want to suffer the fate of this man. He doesn't want to suffer a death by the beer, by the liquor. Here lies a Hampshire grenadier who caught his death drinking cold, small beer. A good soldier is ne'er forgot whether he dieth by musket or by pot. Pot is how they drank beer in England at that time. There was quart pots and pint pots. And you did not sit and consume liquor in those days. It was considered extremely rude to do that. You stood and in the inn or in the saloon was a bar that you could lean against. And that's how a bar gets its name from that time when you would lean against the bar because you couldn't sit and consume liquor. So they had this bar and they would serve the beer in quart pots and pint pots. And when the guys would get a little rowdy, the barkeeper would say, watch your pints and quarts over there. And as that expression of watch your pints and quarts over there came to the colonies in the very late 18th century and early 19th century, oh no, excuse me, uh, the, the, yeah, the early, uh, 1700, the late 1700s, early 1800s, the 19th and 18th century, 
it became watch your P's and Q's. It just got shortened up to watch your P's and Q's over there. And that's how that comes into our language today. My mother would say, watch your P's and Q's, young man, without really knowing where that expression came from. I would assume she didn't know. I Maybe she did. I don't know. But that's how it came in. And he says, ominous warning, which I failed to heed. So he's looking at this, uh, this doggerel on the old tombstone and he doesn't want this to be his fate. And yet between 1918 and 1934, for 16 years, 17 years, he will continue to drink continuously harder and harder and harder and harder. And there will be nothing that he will be able to do to get out from under this merciless obsession to drink liquor. Now, we're out of time, but I am hoping that um, you will join us next week as we continue. I am thinking about moving this. You'll have more than a month or two notice. I'm not going to just do this on the spur of the moment. This is something that is going to be uh, talked about, and, and you'll have more than enough warning. But let me just write down. Uh, 22. Okay. Uh, I'm thinking of moving this earlier because I think we would actually get more people if I rolled it back two, three hours, because I think that what's happening is um, it's coming up in the middle of the day on the East Coast, one o'clock in the afternoon and noon in the middle of the country. And that's right in the middle of a Saturday. And I think that's why some of our numbers are down a bit. So I'll watch the numbers. Let's see where we go. And then we'll think about it. But before I turn it back over to whoever, we'll turn it over for questions. And once again, uh, I hope that you will make plans to join us in Phoenix, Arizona on July the 12th, 13th, and 14th. We are going to have a live big book study in Phoenix uh, at the Crown Point, I believe it is the 12th, the 13th, and the 14th of July. And yes, it's very hot here in July, but I hope you will take advantage of the air-conditioned cars, the air-conditioned shuttle bus, the air-conditioned hotels, an airport, and join us the 12th, 13th, and 14th. We do not have any registration up yet, but it will be up soon. And I hope, again, sincerely, from the bottom of my heart, that God will bless you with the miracles and the wonderment of what I have experienced in 45 years in this program. My sincere hope for you is that you will be able to one day say, yes, being a compulsive overeater was the best thing that ever happened to me because it put me in this program and I'm loving it so much. Okay, no food questions, please. No food questions and no man.